Chapter 15 of The Fighting Shepherdess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fighting Shepherdess by Caroline Lockhart. Chapter 15 One More Whirl. Mr. Toomey folded his comfortable bathrobe over his new pajamas and tied the silken cord and tassel remarking casually. I think we'll have breakfast here this morning. The flowing sleeve of Mrs. Toomey's pink silk negligee fell away from her bare arm as she stood arranging her hair before the wide-topped dresser of Circassian walnut that looked so well against a background of pale gray wallpaper with a delicate pink border. They charge extra, she reminded him. Toomey was already at the telephone. Whole ones? Certainly. And Florida's. Be particular. Eggs, soft to medium. Toast for two without butter. And coffee? Of course, coffee. Send a paper with it, will you? As he hung up the receiver, This is our last breakfast on earth. Old oh dear, we're going home tomorrow. Mr. Toomey repaired to the adjoining bathroom with its immaculate porcelain and tiling, where he inspected his chin critically in the shaving mirror and commented upon the rapid growth of his beard, which he declared became tropical in a temperate climate. Just to be warm and not to have to carry ashes, it's heavenly, ecstatically sighed Mrs. Toomey. Forget it, laconically. What makes him so slow with that order? Mr. Toomey lighted a gold-tipped cigarette and paced the floor impatiently. Mrs. Toomey could not entirely rid herself of the notion that she was dreaming. A lace petticoat hanging over the back of a chair and a brocaded pink corset over another contributed to the illusion. She could not yet believe they were hers any more than was the twenty-dollar creation in the hat-box on the shelf in the closet. During their week's stay in Chicago, Mrs. Toomey had gone about mostly in a state which resembled the delightful languor of hashish, untroubled, irresponsible, save when something reminded her that after Chicago, the cataclysm. Yet she had not yielded easily to Toomey's importunities. It had required all his powers of persuasion to overcome her scruples, her ingrained thrift, and natural prudence. We need the change. We've lived too long in a high altitude. And we're nervous wrecks, both of us, he had argued. We should get in touch with things, and the right kind of people. A trip like this is an investment. That's the way you want to look at it. If you want to win anything in this world, you've got to take chances. It's the plungers, not the plotters, who make big winnings. I've got a hunch that I'm going to get in touch with somebody that'll take an interest in me. Left to herself, Mrs. Toomey would have paid something on their most urgent debts and bought prudently. But she told herself that Jap was as likely to be right as she was, and the argument that he might meet someone who would be of benefit to him was convincing. So finally she had consented. The sense of unreality and wonder which Mrs. Toomey experienced when she saw her trunk going was surpassed 
only by the astonishment of the neighbors, who all but broke the glass in their various windows as they pressed against it to convince themselves that the sight was not an optical illusion. The Toomeys had traveled in a stateroom over Mrs. Toomey's feeble protest, and the best room with bath in one of the best hotels in Chicago was not too good for Mr. Toomey. They had thought to stay three weeks with reasonable economy and return with a modest bank balance, but the familiar environment was too much for Toomey, who dropped back into his old way of living as though he never had been out of it, while the new clothes and the brightness of the atmosphere of prosperity after the years of anxiety and poverty drugged Mrs. Toomey's conscience and caution into a profound slumber, the latter to be awakened only when, counting the banknotes in her husband's wallet, she was startled to discover that they had little more than enough to pay their hotel bill and return to Prouty in comfort. If either of them remembered the source from which their present luxurious enjoyment came, neither mentioned it. The breakfast and service this morning were perfect, and Mrs. Toomey sighed contentedly as she crumpled her napkin and reached for the paper. "'There's been a terrible blizzard west of the Mississippi,' she murmured from the depths of the journal. "'I'm glad we missed a little misery,' Toomey replied carelessly. "'It'll mean late trains and all the rest of it. We'd better stay over until they're running again on schedule.' Mrs. Toomey ignored, if she heard, the suggestion and continued. "'It says that the stock, and the sheep in particular, have died like flies on the range.' and scores of herders have been frozen. There's more herders where they came from, Toomey brushed the ashes from his cigarette into the excavated grapefruit, and yawned and stretched like a cat on its cushion. Think of something pleasant. What are we going to do this evening? We mustn't do anything, Mrs. Toomey protested quickly. If we spend any more, we will have to get a check cashed, and that might be awkward, since we know no one. Besides, we can't afford it. Let's have a quiet evening. A quiet evening? Toomey snorted. That's my idea of hell. I'll tell you about me, old dear. I'm going to have one more whirl if I have to walk back to Prouty, and you might as well go with me. Since he was determined, Mrs. Toomey arrived at the same conclusion also, for not only did she too shudder at the thought of a quiet evening, but her presence was more or less a restraint upon his extravagant impulses. She endeavored to soothe her uneasiness by telling herself that they could make up for it by some economy in traveling, and just one more good play. What, after all, did it really matter? The theater was only four blocks from the hotel, but, as a matter of course, Toomey called a taxicab. These modern conveniences were an innovation that had come during his absence from civilization, and his delight in them was not unlike the ecstasy of a child riding the flying horses. It availed Mrs. Toomey nothing to declare that she preferred exercise, and they arrived at the theater in a taxi. At sight of the box office, Toomey forgot his promise to buy inexpensive seats, but asked for the best obtainable. Carefree and debonair, between acts, Mr. Toomey strolled in the lobby, smoking, and looking so very much in his element 
that Mrs. Toomey temporarily forgot her disquietude in being proud of him. His dinner jacket was not the latest cut, but after giving it much consideration, they had decided that it was not far enough off to be noticeable. And how very handsome and assured he looked as he sauntered with the confident air of a man who had only to entertain a whim to gratify it. Such is the psychology of clothes and the effect of environment upon some temperaments that that was the way Mr. Toomey felt about it. Proudy and importunate creditors did not exist for him. This condition of mental intoxication continued when the play was over, and fearful, Mrs. Toomey spoke hastily of going home immediately. "'I'm hungry,' he asserted. "'We'll go somewhere first and eat something.' "'Let's have sandwiches sent up to the room,' she pleaded. "'Why not a bow-wow from the night lunch cart?' I noticed in the alley. I like the feeling of mustard running between my fingers, derisively. Oh, Jap, we oughtn't to. We really ought not. But he might have been deaf for all the attention he paid to her earnest protests as he turned into one of the brilliantly lighted restaurants which he had previously patronized and that he liked particularly. There was a glitter in his eyes which increased her uneasiness and a recklessness in his manner that was not reassuring. "'I may go to my grave without ever seeing another lobster,' he said, as he ordered shellfish. "'What will you have to drink?' while the waiter hovered. "'Nothing tonight,' she replied, startled. "'Different here? Oh, dear, I'm thirsty. The wine-list, waiter.' That was the beginning. From the time the champagne and oysters arrived until long past midnight, Mrs. Toomey experienced all the sensations that come to a woman who must sit passive and watch her husband pass through the several stages of intoxication. And in addition, she had the knowledge that he could less afford the money he was spending than the waiter who served him. In high spirits at first, with his natural drollness, stimulated to brilliancy, his sallies brought smiles from those at adjoining tables. Then he became in turn boastful, arrogant, argumentative, thick of speech, finely, and slow of comprehension, but obstinate always. "'Gone back jail tomorrow, old dear. Going to finish out my life sentence,' when she reminded him of the lateness of the hour and her weariness, and he resented her interference so fiercely when she countermanded an order that she dared not repeat it. "'You listen to me, waiter. This is my party. Might think I was town drunkard. Village sot. Way my wife trying to flag me.' Mrs. Toomey colored painfully at the attention he attracted. He turned to a latecomer, who had seated himself at a small table across the narrow aisle from them. "'My wife's a great disappointment to me.' No sport, never was, never will be. Mora, addressing himself to the stranger exclusively, gone back to hear the prairie dogs chatter, gone to listen to the sagebrush tick, back one thousand miles from an oyster. Jap, Mrs. Toomey interrupted desperately, we must be going, everyone's leaving. We'll be closing shortly, the waiter hinted. Toomey blinked at the check he placed before him. 
Can't see whether that's twenty dollars or two hundred dollars or two thousand dollars. The waiter murmured the amount, but not so softly, but that Mrs. Toomey paled when she heard it. He had not enough to pay it, she was sure of it, for while he had brought from the room an amount that would have been ample for any ordinary theater supper, wine had not been in his calculations. Mrs. Toomey looked on anxiously while he produced the contents of his pocket. "'Sorry, sir, but this isn't enough,' said the waiter, after counting the notes he tossed upon the plate. Toomey found the discovery amusing. "'You surprise me,' he chuckled. "'Sorry, sir, but,' the waiter persisted. With a swift transition of mood, Toomey demanded haughtily, "'Guess you don't know who I am?' "'No, sir.' Toomey tapped the lapel of his jacket impressively with his forefinger. "'I'm Jasper Toomey of Prouty, Wyoming.' The waiter received the information without flinching. "'Call up the Blackstone, and they'll tell you. I'll be in in the morning to settle.' He wafted the waiter away grandly, the person shrugging a dubious shoulder as he vanished. "'They'll tell him the financial standing of Jasper Toomey, shirtingly.' The waiter returned almost immediately. The hotel knows you only as a guest, sir. Tris insult, deliberate insult. Mr. Toomey rose to his feet and stood unsteadily. Send manager to me immediately, immediately. He's busy, sir, replied the waiter with a touch of impatience, but he said you'd have to settle before leaving. Mrs. Toomey, crimson with mortification and panic-stricken, as visions of a patrol wagon and station house rose before her, interrupted when Toomey would have continued to argue. "'Jap, stay here while I go to the hotel. I can take a taxi and be back in a few minutes.' Toomey refused indignantly. He declared that not only would this be a reflection upon his honesty, but equivalent to pawning him. "'How'd I know,' he demanded shrewdly, "'that you'd ever come back to redeem me?' As Mrs. Toomey cast a look of despair about, her eyes met those of the man who was sitting alone at the table across the aisle. Even in her distress, she had observed him when he had entered, for his height, breadth of shoulder, erectness of carriage, together with the tan and a certain unconventional freedom of movement which, to the initiated, proclaimed him an outdoor westerner, made him noticeable. He was fifty, more possibly, with hair well grayed and the face of a man to whom success had not come easily. Yet that he had succeeded was not to be doubted, for neither his face nor bearing were those of a man who could be or had been defeated. His appearance, substantial, unostentatious, inspired confidence in his integrity and confidence in his ability to cope with any emergency. The lines in his strong face suggested something more than the mere marks of obstacles conquered, of battles lost and won, in the world of business. They came from a deeper source than surface struggles. His mouth, a trifle austere, had a droop of sadness, and, in his calm gray eyes, there was a look of understanding which comes not only from wide experience, but from suffering. Mrs. Toomey had the feeling 
that he comprehended perfectly every emotion she was experiencing. Her fright, her mortification, her disgust at Jap's maudlin speech and foolish appearance. But it was something more than these things which had caused her to look at him frequently. He reminded her of someone, yet she could not identify the resemblance. In their exchange of glances, she now caught a sympathetic flash. Then he rose immediately and came over. "'May I be of service, brother?' As he spoke, he indicated the small button he wore, which corresponded to another on Mr. Toomey's waistcoat. With a slight inclination of his head towards Mrs. Toomey, "'If you'll allow me.' The relieved waiter promptly fled with the note he laid on the plate. "'These situations are a little awkward for the moment,' he added, smiling slightly. "'Mighty nice of you, old top,' Toomey shook hands with him. "'Let me buy you something. What do you have?' The stranger declined and thanked him. Mrs. Toomey expressed her gratitude incoherently. "'You must leave your name and address. We'll mail you a check tomorrow.' "'I always stay at the auditorium.' Mail addressed to me there will be forwarded. He laid his visiting card upon the table. Toomey placed a detaining hand upon his arm as he turned from the table. Look here. Won't let you go till you promise come make us a visit. Stay month. Stay year. Stay rest of your life. Last string hanging out for you. Pure air. Switzerland of America. And greatest natural resources. The stranger detached himself gently. "'I appreciate your hospitality,' he replied courteously. "'Who knows?' To Mrs. Toomey, "'I might some day look in on you. I've never been out in that section of the country.' With another bow, he paid his own account and left the restaurant. Thoroughbred declared Toomey enthusiastically, "'Old dear, I made a hit with him.' Mrs. Toomey was staring after the erect, commanding figure. She read again the name on the card she held in her fingers and murmured with an expression of speculative wonder. The spelling's different, but Prentice, and she looks enough like him to be his daughter. End of chapter 15 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas